On this week's Beyond the Idea, we're going to Starbucks. Seeking Alpha author Atlas Research said the coffee giant's management has been recklessly expanding, leading to increased risks for shareholders and an overvalued stock. One of the author's key arguments is that store traffic is declining, and Mike questions whether that is really dropping to the bottom line for the company. Is the foot tra- traffic a leading indicator of sales? Well, it's been happening for 12 quarters now, according to the author, this decline in foot traffic, and yet sales haven't responded in kind. The author also argues that management incentives are all wrong, and I wonder whether the company is still trying to get out of Howard Schultz's shadow. You wonder how much that's related to. I wonder if you have more of the empire building as a legacy of the chairman, and maybe as they continue to transition away from that, to be more about making Starbucks a a steady and stable grower over time. Starbucks has been a Gen X version of the classic American growth story, taking a local brand and making it global. Is that growth story over, or is it just changing? We discuss on Behind the Idea. Welcome to Behind the Idea. I'm Mike Taylor. And I'm Daniel Schwartzman. Today we're looking at one of America's legendary brands, Starbucks, ticker symbol SBUX. Seeking Alpha author Atlas Research does not think Starbucks is on the right track. Atlas thinks too many stores, less foot traffic, and the dreaded stock buybacks have turned this coffee compounder into dead money. Could that possibly be right? It's Starbucks. We'll discuss on today's episode. (laughs) But before we begin, Behind the Idea is the podcast that looks at ideas from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem to understand what makes great investment analysis work. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice of any sort Neither Daniel nor I have any positions in any of the stocks we plan to discuss. And I just want to say thank you to all of our listeners for the feedback on recent podcasts, especially Kinder Morgan. Uh, You praised us. You made fun of us. You told us we're unemployable and that our laughs are annoying and that we wouldn't cut it on Wall Street. We even got some suggestions for future coverage, so it wasn't all bad. Look, we love it all. We love the online comments. We love the emails. Keep it all coming. Especially keep the suggestions coming. We love to do listener suggestions on the podcast. Okay, we'll get started on Starbucks in just a second. But first, here's a quick word from our sponsor, Oppenheimer Funds. There are big investment opportunities beyond our borders. Megatrends is a new podcast from Oppenheimer Funds that explores the trends reshaping the global economy. I'm your host, Manita Huja. Subscribe to Megatrends now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Okay, so there are a couple legs to Atlas Research's short thesis on Starbucks. And the first one is kind of a classic for a large company, and that's sort of a slowing growth story. So Starbucks has had a meteoric rise since the mid-90s when it really got off the ground. 
and it's been a great success. Grown super fast. We all know Starbucks is everywhere. It's this giant global brand. Ed Norton complained about it in Fight Club in 1999. Uh, there's just a Starbucks everywhere, at least in the U.S., and that's part of the problem. So, Daniel, how would you recap the slowing growth story that Atlas Research outlines in this article? I think it's th- there are two main points, I think, which is the U.S. focus is that there's basically not much room left for Starbucks to run, that their new stores seem to be cannibalizing their existing stores, which is most evident in their traffic. Their traffic has really, I think the author compares it to the recession era as far as the last time that they generated generated consistent flat or negative traffic growth on a year-over-year basis. And I think that's been for a period of about a year or so. And so people aren't going into Starbucks as much on a per store basis, then really your only upside is by charging them more for their coffee and their other, obviously Starbucks sells a lot more than coffee at this point. But so I think that's the U S focus and we can kind of go into that, but it's essentially that they're running out of They seem to be expanding at a still quite fast clip. The author has a chart showing a steady growth in the store count contrasted against steady decline in same store sales growth, which is especially hitting them because of lower traffic uh, growth. Foot traffic is down. And that that is the, I think, the crux of it. And then the other sort of big point is that China, the author doesn't see China as a real growth opportunity for Starbucks at this point. I think the author compares Starbucks to Apple and a few other brands who have failed to succeed in failed to succeed, failed to grow in China. And now you have luck and coffee, which we're recording this on Friday, May 17th. I think they are first opening on the markets today. That seems to be out competing Starbucks. And so you don't have the overseas growth story that Starbucks has been telling for a long time. And you have the fact that the company has overbuilt itself in the U S And I think the most telling argument the author makes is both that there are more Starbucks in the U.S. than there are McDonald's and that McDonald's comp store sales growth is beating Starbucks since 2017, both of which, you know, we still Starbucks is so established, but we still think of them as this sort of fresher, newer generation you know, it was founded, I think, some 30 years after McDonald's. And so it's just interesting to see that contrast. So I think that's the slowing growth story and the the idea that this is matured as a play. Is that, what do you take from that? I kind of glommed onto the domestic side of things. It looks from just Googling around that uh, global sales are still pretty small relative to domestic sales for Starbucks. So I, uh, that was my assumption going in and looking at it seems to be more or less the case. So my first question is kind of, okay, foot traffic declined one or so percent for a couple of years now. Are we sure that that's, how bad do we think that is? I, 
one of the things I struggled with in this report was kind of figuring out how grave some of these metrics were. I just didn't have it. For one thing, one thing that jumped out at me was they compared Starbucks with McDonald's and they show Starbucks in a downtrend of same store sales. So the same revenue from stores that existed a year ago. How do those compare? Basically trying to get a clean measure of how within a given store, what's the sales picture look like? And the point the author Atlas Research was trying to make was that uh, McDonald's has risen to become sort of the number three player in coffee. And they now offer many drinks that are comparable to Starbucks drinks and they're sort of competing. But I also noticed that from 2017 to 2018, same store sales are down for both McDonald's and Starbucks. So I'm wondering whether this is an issue that's specific to Starbucks or whether it's a broader issue. And on top of that, I'm wondering whether these metrics matter. So, I, and I would start with foot traffic. So what do you think? Do you think this is Starbucks specific? And do you think foot traffic is a really important measure of success? I think it's, I don't have the full information to say whether it's Starbucks specific or not, but I remember two to three years ago, invest, I invested in one or two restaurant companies. And just even then it felt, and again, I think we've been proven many times to be conservative in our views on the economy and where we are in the market and whatever. But to me, restaurants seem to be a leading indicator of recessions. And at that time, restaurants felt toppy and just there wasn't a lot of growth out there. There weren't a lot of really exciting same store sales stories. I think same store sales is ultimately where you want to make your bones. You need to show that the actual on a store level, people are buy, buying more food, coffee, whatever, or you're not, you're, you don't have a growth story, right? Because otherwise you can build more stores, but if they're not growing over time, that becomes less attractive. And again, there is this cannibalization. So yeah, actually, I, I don't know if your, your question leads me to think that you disagree, but I do think traffic is probably the more important of the two. I think sure pricing power is great, but part of the argument the author makes is, and this is also where McDonald's comes in, is that on the high side, Starbucks is facing more and more compet competition from Blue Bottle was an example they use, but from these sort of chicier, actually, in some cases, actually local coffee, high-end coffee shops. In other cases, just other coffee shops, other chains. And then on the low end, you have competition from Dunkin' Donuts or Dunkin' now, from McDonald's, from whomever else. And so to me, I think traffic does matter because that's if you don't have the traffic and then you're only playing on price, it's sort of, we talked about this with True Panion, with the Crick Ant, and in other cases, if you only are competing on price, that's not super powerful. I think it might be overstated just in the sense that it's still Starbucks. I I think the fact that people are gunning for them makes sense and should be countered, factored into the valuation, but I also don't know how new that is or how surprising that is or anything else. 
Okay. I guess I'm going to I'm going to take a risk of mischaracterizing the argument here, so if I if this is because I don't understand some of the terms or I don't understand the metrics properly then so be it just I'm just going to give my reaction as I was reading. So Starbucks is raising prices and foot traffic is declining. Starbucks also the author sort of makes fun of the decision to reiterate that it's open to all and embrace all kinds of people in the public. And that's had some consequences in terms of, you know, the types of people that frequent the stores. I think the author mentions drug use, for example. But I wonder if that's actually all those things are kind of, you could tell a story where that's all kind of by intent. So Starbucks is positioning itself kind of as an accessible premium coffee brand. Then one thing that it might do is create a kind of be theoretically open to everybody, then have systems in place that create the kind of environment that they still want, pricing being one of those. So if the people who stick around for the higher priced offerings are the kind of people that create the atmosphere in a Starbucks that's important, then maybe it's okay. Maybe it's working. Maybe there's something is working here. Like the declining foot traffic. Do we know that those are necessarily the low margin or the high margin customers? Do we know what kind of customers those are? So I guess I saw this on a surface level as being a powerful indicator, but I don't know if foot traffic necessarily turns into negative, like a decline in foot traffic has not accompanied a decline in sales. It's led to, it's accompanied a slowdown in sales growth, but growth is still positive. So are we necessarily sure that I just think that the, you could poke a few holes in the foot traffic declines as being negative. Meanwhile, sales are still increasing. They're increasing slower, but they're still increasing. So is that is is the foot tra traffic a leading indicator of sales? Well, it's been happening for 12 quarters now, according to the author, this decline in foot traffic. And yet sales haven't responded in kind. So I just think that there's potentially more to this story than what we're seeing here. And I didn't quite get, my initial read was like, oh, this is very persuasive. And then I've come become a little bit more circumspect about the author's interpretation of the growth slowdown. I do believe that the growth is slowing down, but I'm not sure that it's as negative as the author might want us to think. Let me uh, let me make a one chart that I thought was compelling, and then also move into one of the other topics we wanted to get into, which was management. The thing, the chart that I found the most impressive, and the author has a lot of charts that they put in themselves based on the company filings. Negative operating leverage, I thought, was spelled out really well, which is just showing their revenue is going up, and yet operating margins have declined pretty sharply. And just to sort of put it pretty sharply, but 
I'm now checking my scale for, I pulled it up on Y charts, the operating margin, pretty sharply from about 18% to 14.5%, which is real money. Also, you know, not catastrophic. And I think the author points out the sort of adjustments the company tries to make in terms of restructuring and everything else. And we'll get that second. But I did think that that was stepping away from the foot traffic argument specifically. You don't, you, you want to see a restaurant company gaining operating leverage and gaining traffic. Obviously you want them to be more people to be coming in. And that's again, where we get into, okay, where are we with Starbucks? Is this, it's got more stores than McDonald's. It's huge company. It's global brand. You see it everywhere. You know, I live in Europe. You see it everywhere. It's very common. And they even entered Italy finally. So the question is, what else, where else can Starbucks go? Are they mismanaging or anything else? And that's where in the management point, the thing that I found was interesting, I think were two things. One, more compelling circumstantially, don't know how much it matters, especially given the other point, which is that the author quotes the management team, then COO Kevin Johnson, who's now the CEO, and former CEO Howard Schultz when he was the CEO, and points out how much they try to argue that slowing comps were not a big deal in 2016. They were anomalies. He quotes, the author quotes Howard Schultz saying that in 24 years of public life, can't remember anything like Q3 2016, which was the run up to the 2016 US presidential election, but also a fairly dramatic statement in hindsight. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and Schultzy baby. <laughs> I he's, mean, he did he's, just real quick on this. Like he dipped his toes in the political waters and like this is fairly self-inflicted, right? Like he he was complaining about the level of political discourse in America in the context of the Republican primaries. He uh it's it's since he's since you know, had it entered the presidential race, although I haven't heard anything lately about what he's up to. But I mean, he is correct that 2016, I think, felt for a lot of people like a very uh, anomalous year politically in the United States. But I think the fact that that affected Starbucks's results is at least partially because of what Howard Schultz did and said during that year. Anyway, that's a tangent, but I I just, I mean, maybe it's important actually. There's something to, um, his, his personality seems to have some bearing on the company and the stock price. Yeah. Well, and because then that's the other part of it. So the, the one part of the management thing is the fact that they haven't really gotten their heads around what's going on very well but then the other part that is i think more interesting and intriguing when you consider where the company is is the fact that kevin johnson since taking the helm has made changes to their strategy has sort of hasn't rolled back the general growth plans which i also think investors like the growth plans is my perception but also has rolled back things like the roastery which was the really premium vision that 
Howard Schultz believed in that may not really be relevant and this other reserve like has kind of put those ideas on the shelf and focused Starbucks. In other words, there's still some transition from the old regime to the new regime, which when a new management team comes in, that has an impact on what the company is going to do, their strategy, and then how it plays out in their stock and everything else. So I think that's an interesting angle here. I don't think the author has a super strong directional view on one management team better than the other or anything else. I think I I take the author's case as more they're in a tough spot. They're still growing way too much. And, you know, now they're trying to grow into areas that are lower cost markets, which also means lower income markets. And Starbucks is not a super low income thing, which I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm actually a little bit skeptical about, it. I, you know, I'm thinking about the, the recent tweet from the JP Morgan account about the bank account telling its client that if they just didn't buy coffee every day, they would have a lot of money and that sort of thing or whatever it was. But Sue Zorman also said something, but I, I think, I think that's I just a lot of people are like, Oh, come on. That's stupid. But is it, I, I feel like there's been a backlash to the idea of like basic everyday frugality and I am kind of like, this is also a tangent, but maybe I'm just tangent man today. But I mean, come on. Like, no, well, rich I, people I think- are cheap. They get rich by being cheap. I don't, I like, I, I just said like the hipster thing of like, I'm not going to. And well, okay. I feel like a, a lot of different ways about that JP Morgan tweet. Uh, one is like. <laughs> One is like when you look at the breakdown of all the like allegedly discretionary things. I mean, there's like internet or cable is on there and coffee's on there. And someone like did a snarky tweet of like a lot of people just need coffee to be able to like function in in our society. And I think if you look at that breakdown, a lot of those elements were not really may have been considered non-essential in a previous economic regime. But I think the way we're constituted now, uh, a lot of those things are sort of requirements or they can be viewed as investments in ways to advance, like get better wages or get better jobs. But, But I also think, I mean, come on, like the idea that discipline on everyday small purchases doesn't have an impact on long-term savings and well-being is i think a little overblown uh it's it's people are like that's penny ante that won't really move the needle and i'm kind of i understand why but i also think come on like people have to start somewhere and i know for me my like personal financial discipline did start with kind of looking at those things and like trying to get on my feet and then that's how you start. You can only become an investor if you save. So we're well outside of Starbucks now, but I just, that, that irritated me. I know. I hear that. I, I, I think there's, and I think that's also Twitter discourse and whatever else. I think my quick take on the t- tweet is that it was just in bad taste the way it was delivered. It was very sort of snarky and very, very clear that it's your fault rather than trying to, 
remind that, yeah, frugality can get you somewhere. And coming from a bank like JP Morgan, which has been put in the spotlight for a couple of things, like it's not always JP Morgan is the bank that lost a billion dollars on a trade. Like it's, it's kind of hard to be the spokesperson for frugality in that sense. So I think that's, that's, but the reason I brought it up was when you think, I think about, you know, when I, in, in the States in the summer, I'm in Western Michigan, not rural, but relatively isolated. And I know my sister-in-law, every time she drives to Grand Rapids, she stops at about the halfway point, there's a Panera Bread. And that's like a huge deal for her. And I I imagine for a lot of people to be able to get a national chain like that, which is, I think, still Panera is no longer public traded, but I think is still kind of considered a somewhat higher end brand it's than mcdonald's for example and starbucks i think is the same way i think people it does have brand power is what i'm arguing and so i'm not sure i just i guess that's again we're kind of grappling with this slowing growth story and what it means we haven't quite got to valuation yet and to the buyback and the non-gap stuff but i think that's that's what i'm just trying to draw on is that i think starbucks still and as full disclosure, I don't really like Starbucks. I'm not a huge coffee drinker, and I generally am not about Starbucks brand. I generally don't just find it annoying, but in that Ed Norton sort of way. But like they seem pretty they've got something that works. And so I'm I I think you want to be measured with how you're drawing your your bearish thesis on the company. I guess that's all I'm getting at. Okay. Yeah. So let's try and circle back and put a button maybe on the growth story. So I think the I agree with you that the negative operating leverage chart did look like something and, you know, 4% is meaningful of a decline in operating leverage. I think you said 18% to 14%, something like that. But for, for a real retailer or a, a restaurant, those single percentages are really meaningful just because of the because of the concept of operating leverage. So where am I going with this? Revenue is going up, but then it's incrementally sort of thinner and thinner contribution to operating earnings. Fine. I think what's interesting about that is how it's bundled up in what you were talking about and sort of later on after we discuss that chart, which is the concept of Starbucks brand and where it's positioned. And the author Atlas Research does a nice job, I think, of painting a picture of Starbucks as a company that's sort of getting pinched both at the top end from the blue bottles of the world and also at the lower end from Star- from McDonald's and Dunkin' Donuts and those sort of more price competitive brands. And when I think about Starbucks and its positioning, it does seem like that's a really important component of the story. Where Starbucks is as a customer experience and where it is on the pricing spectrum are probably pretty critical to its future. And I do think that that's, we're at a point right now where that does seem to have gotten noisier and more muddled in the sense that 
There's a Starbucks everywhere. You can get served very quickly. It's probably not that different to pick up a coffee from Starbucks versus a Dunkin' Donuts in terms of your wait time. Like you can go and get, if you just want a coffee, you can go in and get it, but you can also go in theory, go there and set up your laptop and work or meet a friend and catch up over coffee, which is something that I think people would not do so often in Dunkin' Donuts. Kind of the color scheme in there is very orange and pink, and it seems to have that sort of McDonald's get the teenagers out of the store fast food type of design aesthetic, where Starbucks has a kind of tries to be this like more dark forest green and has lighting a little bit less harsh and tries to be a place you can actually go and hang out. Be careful about how you refer to Dunkin' Donuts, my friend. <laughs> it's uh... I will not be careful about how I refer to Dunkin' Donuts. I love Dunkin' Donuts. I love the coffee. I have celiac <laughs> disease, so I can't eat the donuts, but I, oh, they have good they have good coffee. Yeah. Um, shout out to my celiac listeners. So let's let's maybe move into some of the management, the non-gap stuff and the the buyback stuff, because I think that's the other there there's the operating story, but I'm also interested in the financial arguments. Before we do, let's just take another second for a quick word from Oppenheimer Funds about their podcast, Megatrends. Hey everyone. I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from Oppenheimer Funds called Megatrends. There are big investment opportunities beyond our borders. Megatrends explores and explains those opportunities. I'm your host, Manita Huja. I'm an award-winning business journalist and author. Tune in to hear me talk to the experts about thinking globally when it comes to investing. Subscribe to Megatrends now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. So the financial story here, Mike, is that we have, first of all, just let's throw out valuation they're trading at something like 30 times 2000, I think 2019 gap PE. And then they've got some, the author criticizes how they've improved their adjusted earnings and they add back something like they get up to 30 cents, I think 30 to 40 cents of add backs from a non gap basis, mostly related to transaction integration related items, but also some persistent restructuring and stock-based compensation. And the author kind of ties that back to management incentives, which are tied around that, which is a fair point. Anything you you see in that part of the story before the the buybacks thing? Anything you see in the in the terms of their their adjustments, their non-gap stuff, or or anything else noteworthy about the management efforts here? Uh, I'm not sure how compelling I found the discussion, but the author does address an issue, which is that the non-GAAP results by which management is measured and compensated adjusts for the uh, restructuring charges related to, I think, primarily closing stores that are have not worked. And as an incentive, that suggests to me, meanwhile, revenue and earnings per share and a couple other things are 
the are what management is incentivized to pursue. If you're incented to optimize for revenue and earnings per share, and you are not penalized for the costs associated with closing stores that don't work, or that penalty is adjusted for you, then I think I am somewhat persuaded by the idea that that is a perverse structure that would induce you. If I, if I had that structure in place, I would, I would be more aggressive in opening stores and trying to find the saturation point because the penalty that gap charges me for restructuring or reintegrating or shutting down a store is not going to show up in my performance review. So I kind of get it. I don't, I think ultimately it's probably a minor thing relative to, you know, ultimately the stock performance and the company's performance is going to matter. But to the extent that management responds to these kind of incentives in the short term, I do think that there's something there. I think you didn't really buy the argument even as much as I did, but what do you think? Yeah, I think that's, I think the incentives are interesting here. And yeah, I guess that that is, you could argue that that's the, arguably the biggest bear point actually is that the company is incentivized. And maybe that's, maybe that's what the argument is here. Fundamentally, maybe we're, we've spent too much time on the operating metrics when actually the fundamental story here is that management is incentive incented to do things that may not be in the long term health of the company as far as growing stores, as far as chasing revenue, as far as adjusted earnings, which is allowing them to get away with restructuring, that sort of thing. So uh, yeah, I don't know. And, and we brought them up earlier and I was trying to Google as we were the as we were talking about this, our friend Mr. Schultz, who is apparently sort of still deciding about whether or not he's going to enter the presidential race, but is no longer the chairman of Starbucks. So I I don't know yet if he's how much of his shares he's divested, but I think and he's sort of he's not actually the founder of Starbucks. It's sort of like the McDonald's story. I think he but more without the acrimony where I think he took somebody else's brand and then made it the global brand that it is. But you wonder how much that's related to. I wonder if you have more of the empire building as a legacy of the chairman. And maybe as they continue to transition away from that, Kevin Johnson has already kind of paired back some of their growth story and maybe continues to change the job definition to be more about making Starbucks a, a steady and stable grower over time. I I don't know. I'm not sure if I'm hitting on quite what you were you were discussing as far as the incentives, but I wonder if again, if this all sort of bends back towards Starbucks where they are, are they transitioning? Are they aware of that they're have they changed their mind about who they are yet, or do they still feel that they should be this exciting growth story? Right. Yeah. Okay. So I think you hit the nail on the head and I'll just read from Atlas Research's article because I think this is where they come in for the kind of uh, master stroke. 
They say, so we have a situation today where Starbucks executives get to simply throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks, leaving shareholders to clean up the mess left behind. This explains why management will continue adding thousands of stores each year, even as the market data tells us many of these stores will generate subpar returns. So that is the crux of this argument. And I think domestically, it makes sense. I do. And, and then I think the other important leg of that is, okay, but where, where does the market fall on this and where does the valuation fall? And that's kind of, I think where we were headed is we have a table here, 33 times gap earnings and 27, 28 times EV, EBIT. Those are, well, in today's market, who can really tell, but I, those are numbers that I associate with a fairly fast grower, especially in a space like restaurant slash retail. Uh, you made a note in here that uh, Starbucks should probably not be valued more highly than Costco, which I think you and I both sort of consider. And I think even that that guy, Charlie Munger, mentioned Costco as being like an extremely secure business and a kind of paragon among retailers. Anyway, Starbucks seems to have a fairly generous valuation. And I think what's interesting about your comment to me is that even if you explain away, okay, they're transitioning, new management is coming in, they're going to write the ship and they're kind of going to create a Starbucks that's a little bit steadier, that they'll figure out this kind of growth issue. None of that sounded to me like tremendous growth is in the offing. And I think the valuation is probably more aligned potentially with the historical growth story. And the Atlas research also makes this argument that the non-GAAP metrics are really what the street is focusing on. If all that's true, then I think that is a fairly decent bear case. But I have one sort of objection that I think we haven't hit yet, which is there seems to be a lot of international headroom for Starbucks. And I'm reminded kind of in the last cycle towards the peak when we had Yum Brands or Pepsi and the kind of there was still room for KFC to make giant inroads in China. And I think the one leg of this bear thesis that I don't find complete, that I think is still kind of unaddressed, even with the comments the author makes about China and increasing international competition is international looks like a big opportunity for Starbucks. So even if there's a slowdown domestically, I don't know that it follows that overall we have a major problem. You could even see a situation where the US business matures, but there's such a ocean for Starbucks to dive into internationally that the growth story can persist. So that would be maybe, I think that's where I come down on this. I think I buy it. It seems like a generous valuation for Starbucks uh, if you assume that international growth is subpar or consistent with the domestic issues. But there's another version of the world where 
it, okay, fine, domestic's not good, but we're going gangbusters internationally. Even then, the valuation seems generous, but as people have called us value hipsters, that's probably just me being an old fuddy-duddy. Well, I, so I thought I thought actually one of the more compelling parts of the argument was that the China growth story might not play out. And I don't, and then I, I sort of, scanning the site and some of our other articles, there are people who say, yeah, luck and coffee is burning a ton of cash. Even their IPO won't last long, which, which to me is not good for Luckin, but also is not good for Starbucks. Whenever somebody is being given money to burn cash, that doesn't make me feel good about my business. And that's something we've talked about with the car companies and Tesla and other things. But yeah, I, I so I thought that the argument that China may not in and of itself be the growth story. It's compelling. And then the question comes and that we haven't really seen that we haven't seen where they go in terms of the rest of the world. I haven't seen a compelling story about what their opportunity is in other places. Italy. Italy. Tons of coffee drinkers in Italy. Tons of lots of cafe. They love cafes in Italy. Coffee should be a layup. Total it's layout. tough to price it high, though. You can get good coffee in Europe for not a bunch of money. And then they, you know, obviously they call the Cafe Americano is basically just watered down espresso. But yeah, I don't know. I But but whatever. I think Starbucks, Star, Starbucks has a- <laughs> the drip coffee revolution in Europe. <laughs> That's what the, what that is. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, car- Starbucks, I think you could say that they're levered to the grow- the growth of the middle class in the world. And so, yeah, I can see that argument. I, the, the two other things that I think are interesting here beyond the international story is the buyback that's going on, which I, I'll, I'll say my piece, but then you had some interesting observations about it as well. The buyback to me doesn't seem catastrophic or anything. Like they, it's a company with a ninety-five billion dollar market cap, and they might have ten billion in net debt. And the author called that a really bad situation. They just priced a bond, which they're tying to their efforts to be sustainable and green, for I think two billion dollars in total proceeds for three point five five percent ten years from now, and four point four five percent thirty years from now, which is comparable the 40 30 year one is is not much more than you would pay for a mortgage right like it's a really low it's more but not much starbucks is riskier than i am i'll just put it well i wasn't speaking about you mike i wasn't your your credit i have no doubt i'm a special case yeah i'm really reliable so i get it yeah you you don't you don't sorry i just you don't spend your extra money i I don't see the world in this you don't spend your extra money i don't see the credit (laughs) mark I don't see the credit markets the same way that the rest of the world does. It's just a different story for me. And look, I'm a good, I'm a good bet, folks. Listeners, bet. if you if you conserve your money the way Mike discussed earlier on this podcast, you too will qualify for better rates. Not not actually true. We have no idea if that's true. Please. I do I I did stop drinking coffee. I now drink tea. I, I never bought it at Starbucks. I bought it at the grocery store, the little free fro- suctioned, vacuum sealed little brick of coffee. It's the cheapest they yeah. have. 
And so I'm now saving, I'm saving between like two fifty and $5 a month uh, on my path, on my path to wealth and Starbucks, yeah. Starbucks does sell tea. They own the Tivana brand, which is so they do have tea. They have leveraged the tea. I remember Hedgeye came out with a report last fall, I think, arguing that Starbucks risk actually was expanding their menu, which doesn't come up here. But with the buyback play, like they're getting money relatively cheaply. And their comp sales, you know, they're around three percent in Q1, I think was the report. Like is 2019 calendar year, not their fiscal reporting. It's not crazy. And if you like you could I, I'm thinking again about our previous week's discussion on Kinder Morgan and what's the right cash flow and growth capex versus maintenance capex and all that stuff. And you sort of think like the company had 3.4 billion in free cash flow the last 12 months. I am excluding they had some big deferred revenue buildup, which might be related to them selling off their consumer packaging goods unit to Nestle, or it might be related to change in their loyalty program. I just kind of removed that to kind of normalize. But 3.4 billion with 2 billion in CapEx, if you cut CapEx in half, which would mean a significant decrease in their store growth. And then you assume that they can maintain current comp sales, where if your argument is that they're overgrowing, then in theory, maybe if you cut down store growth, you can focus on just growing comp sales. I don't know. It's not, you, you get to something where they're growing, you know, they're still pricey, I guess. They're still, I think the numbers I got us were still 30, they're still 30 times 2021 earnings and print non-adjusted earnings with you know 5% EPS growth which is pretty low but still 5 billion free cash flow so about a 5% free cash flow yield like they're it's not i guess i came away from the buyback discussion not thinking that this was a crazy move to buy back shares just from what the right leverage should be for the company and also the company to me i didn't see the obvious catalyst here it seemed like a decent hedge it seems like a decent you can make the argument it won't outperform the s p 500 but i didn't see this all came it was a very impressive report and i think as a bull i would be quite concerned about this and you know again the valuation we both love costco as a company and never can get our heads around it and starbucks probably shouldn't be ahead of costco but it's still not it's not bonkers and it's not it's not where something screams to me as oh yeah this this is going to be a good short in the near term and then the questions that we said about the fundamental are they overbuilding at a, at the risk of destroying the soul of the company's story that's interesting to me. I feel like that takes a longer time horizon and it could be something where they go sideways again for a few years, the way they did from 2015 to 17 or whatever it was where the stock price did not move very much. I, well, so my thoughts, I, I think that's basically, I landed in the same place in general. I thought that, Oh, great. This is like a really interesting, someone's taking on, I mean, when this came in for review on Seeking Alpha, we were, we were kind of all got excited because it's like, oh, a well-researched, interesting, contrarian take on sort of a stock market darling and certainly one of the great sort of business 
stories of the past two or three decades. But the more I've read it over and looked at it, I've been a little bit kind of, okay, this is probably, yeah, just kind of maybe a busted growth story. And maybe there's some hair around management incentives, but I didn't come away with a very negative view of the company itself and valuation does seem generous, but it's hard to just, it's hard to, it's hard to short on valuation. I guess that's, that's a sort of cliche, but we'll run with it. Debt to free cash flow. I'm seeing I, by your numbers, it's probably two and a half, maybe, or on Seeking Alpha, it says three, three times free cash flow for a business like Starbucks doesn't seem unreasonable for debt. The one thing about the buybacks that just I still don't understand, which I think seems a little wild to me, is that in the past two quarters, they've bought back seemingly bought back enough stock to flip their stockholders equity negative, or at least their retained earnings account negative. And we were just sort of chewing that over ahead of the podcast. I'm not sure how to interpret that. It's a little concerning to me, although we've run across some balance sheets that are upside down for reasonable reasons before. Uh, yeah. But, you know, there's no, stood out. There's no debt to equity ratio. So I like, I spent a couple seconds like, okay, I've got to compare this to some flows because I have no idea <laughs> what to do that my go-to debt to equity didn't work. The, yeah, the, the retained earnings reminds me of the dominoes. I think we found when we were looking at Papa John's more than a year ago, I think we found either they or Domino's had a really weird balance sheet that also had negative equity. What do you make of... The the last thing that's interesting here, what do you make of the fact that our boy Bill Ackman is long Starbucks shares and came out with a presentation in October with a position in the stock? What, what's your thoughts there? Anything? Anything? The last Bill Ackman stock we covered, a- he was Chipotle, which, as you might recall, was one of the best performing stocks that behind the idea covered last year. So he's back. He's well, I mean that that's the the word around the financial knitting circles, I guess. <laughs> Matt Levine, his money stuff newsletter, which I don't think we're both big fans of Matt Levine. And which is probably uh, the premier financial knitting circle available on the web. It is yes. You cannot knit he is one of the great financial <laughs> yarn spinners around. And he his knitting is just intricate without parallel. Intricate. I think anyway, shout to Matt Levine. Good job. As usual, you sarcastic, uh, smart guy The he, <laughs> I bringing that up because he, he made fun of Ackman for sort of publicly declaring he was going to do less public stuff and go more into what stick to his own knitting, the fundamental research and analysis. And, as far as I know, the results since his sort of avowal of his vow of poverty and anonymity and humble uh, investment research, he probably, I would guess, knows why uh, the retained earnings are negative on a company like Starbucks. I'm less, I was worried about him. 
we had, I was concerned about him during the Valiant saga and the Herbalife saga. Right now, I I wish him well, and it doesn't. His presence has no effect on my view of the company one way or the other. And I'm glad. I'm I'm happy for him that he has seemed to seemed capable of recentering his own life. Maybe maybe that would be his advice for Starbucks: is do less press, weed out the distractions, start focusing on what's important, and uh, and you'll be fine. He's been known to go activist in that kind of way before. So I'm, I have warm feelings for Bill Ackman in, in this new iteration, this new phase of his career. So I think you've always had, at least as far as behind the ideas gone, I think you've, you've been a Bill Ackman stan on this podcast. Been a, for, a supporter. Supporter. Yeah. I go back to those, or those early, you know, pre-crisis figure days when he was really... Knocking it out of the park. Really... Uh, Really knocking it out of the park. Yeah. I would just point that his latest 13F filing, Pershing Square's latest 13F filing, shows that the company paired their Starbucks holding down by 1.7 million shares. So already getting some value out of the shares. The shares have risen quite a bit since October when they came out at the Grants Conference with the long thesis. So another another successful outing for our man Bill Ackman. Congratulations. I can't think of a better place to land. <laughs> Let's land it then. Let's land it. Congratulating <laughs> Bill Ackman on a successful successful trade. Good work. Good work, Bill. And yeah. as we say that the breaking headline on Seeking Alpha is that Luckin Coffee skyrockets and skyrockets an IPO open. So there you go, coffee. Well, so we'll see. They got they're getting money. They'll be able to get more. Uh, I saw Ann Stevenson Yang tweeting about Luckin this morning. So just shout out to Ann Stevenson Yang and Jay Capital. And uh, I'm sure that she would have some great views on Luckin. Shout out to Bill Ackman. Shout out to Matt Levine. And uh, shout out to Atlas yeah. Research for for putting together a really compelling short idea that we had a lot of generated a lot of thought for us. And I think there's a lot more. Starbucks is more complicated than I thought. And I, so I'm glad we got an opportunity to do it. Yeah. I don't know. I I mean, definitely as ever don't have a strong conclusion here, but the story, it was a compelling (laughs) piece. It's, it's one of those things where not every, not every article necessarily is right or, or is going to be predictive of stock prices or anything else, but can still be compelling and worth reading about and worth considering and worth informing future investment thinking and analysis and so forth. I think that played out here. Totally. All right, Daniel. All right. Good stuff, Mike. Our friendship is venti size, <laughs> I believe. So I just don't even know if, which size that is. I hope that's the big one. It's the 20 size. It's, it's 20 ounce. Our friendship is 20 ounces. <laughs> Okay, let's see right, there. What do you ask? Let's see you, Mike. All right, bye, Daniel. Bye. Take care. <laughs> Here's a last word from Oppenheimer Funds about their podcast, Megatrends. There are big investment opportunities beyond our borders. Megatrends is a new podcast from Oppenheimer Funds that explores the trends reshaping the global economy. I'm your host, Manita Huja. Subscribe to Megatrends now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Idea. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode. Have any feedback for us? Email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com. If you have any time to leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please do. It will help other investors find this podcast and allow us to make this podcast better for you. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Thank you for listening, and see you next week on Behind the Idea. Japanese headband, motion for silence, the learning began, he said.